My name is James Lima. I'm the pastoral intern here at Livingstone and the music director. If you haven't met me, I'd love to, to sit down, talk with you, get to know you a little bit. Uh, and I just got licensed to preach in our denomination back in September. So this is my first sermon as a licensed preacher in our denomination. And uh, because of that, I'll probably be preaching more often. So if you don't like my sermons, this is maybe a good time to switch churches. Um, <laughs> something like that. I don't know. Sorry. So I, I know that there's this perpetual debate that happens about whether or not we're allowed to start celebrating Christmas before Thanksgiving comes. And I have to admit that I've already been listening to some Christmas music. But I just want you to know that Livingstone doesn't have an official stance on this. It's not like in the Westminster Confession anywhere about whether or not you're allowed to start celebrating Christmas. But since we started in the book of Luke, we're going to be in Luke 1. And Thanksgiving is this next week. We're going to be looking at the announcement to Mary that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, the coming king. And we would preach on this passage if we started Luke in July. We're going to preach wherever we find ourselves in scripture as we go through it. And we should be able to talk about these things any time of the year. We should be able to talk about the incarnation, about God becoming man, come to save us from our sins. So just in case you're thrown off that this feels a lot like a Christmas sermon, it's just where we're at. Um, so I hope that we can hear well from the word of God. But next Sunday, if you're aware, is the first Sunday of Advent for us. And Advent, if you've never celebrated Advent, is a time for us to prepare to celebrate the coming of Christ. And we do that in a couple of ways. The first is that, in a way, we kind of put ourselves into the shoes of the Israelites who are longing for a coming king. So we sing songs like, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And we just imagine, what would it be like to long for that first coming of Christ? But at the same time, we look forward even now to another Advent. To the time when Christ comes back a second time, when he comes and makes all things new. And so we sing songs like, Joy to the world, the Lord is come, which not only sings about the first coming of Christ, but really is looking forward to the day that Christ comes and makes his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And so I just want us to prepare for that. I think this passage helps us prepare for Advent, the season that helps us prepare for Christmas well. So maybe a double layer of preparation. And I really want us to dive into that first aspect of Advent this week. So trying to imagine what was it like to be an Israelite who was longing for the coming Messiah, longing for the coming Christ. And to do that, to really get into that, I think we need to do some biblical theology, which is this idea that we want to understand the overarching story of Scripture. I like to think of it as tying threads from Genesis all the way to Revelation, understanding how God has worked redemption from beginning to end. And there are a lot of different threads that you can tie. Um, and we're actually, there's a couple in this passage that we could hop onto, but the major thread that I want us to focus on is the thread of offspring. Starting all the way back in Genesis 3, right after sin entered into the world, God promised an offspring of Eve, a son of Eve, who is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. An offspring, a son, who is going to defeat death and defeat the devil. And we see promises of offspring unfolding over and over in God's covenant promises with his people. And the passage that we just read in 2 Samuel 7 is one of those promises. And it's one of the primary promises about this coming Messiah, this coming king. God promises to David, as we just read, that there's going to be a king who's going to come from his lineage, who's going to sit on his throne for all eternity, is going to be called the Son of God. And the big question through the Old Testament is, who is this Messiah? Who is this king, the Christ, 
going to be? Where is he going to come from? When can we expect him to come? And as you go through the rest of the story of the Old Testament, there are continual promises through the prophets, even in the Psalms, about who this king is going to be. If you've ever struggled reading through First uh, and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles alongside Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it's usually the books that people kind of peter out on when they're trying to read through the whole Bible. Just want to give you a hint here: if you're reading through First and Second Kings, read it through the perspective of the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel seven. Read it through the lens of: is this king? Because it lists out all the kings of Israel and Judah. Is this king the one? Is he going to be the one that brings God's kingdom for all eternity? Starts off well with Solomon, as, as Josh mentioned. He built a temple. He was wise. He was wealthy. He was powerful. But even this wise man turned from wisdom to foolishness and turned from the Lord. After Solomon, the kingdom divides north to south, the southern kingdom retaining the, the Davidic line. But as the northern kingdom spirals out of control, they go into exile. The southern kingdom, even the line of David, becomes corrupt. It's this downward spiral of kings, many of them awful, the best of those kings themselves were tainted with sin. And even that southern kingdom themselves goes off into exile. And it seems like the Davidic line of kings is broken. And the question is, is God going to fulfill his promises? Because for almost 600 years after they go into exile, there's not another Davidic king who sits on the throne. Has God's promise failed? Did God lie to us? And there's a lot of expectations of God's people of who this person would be. As we read in our passage today, we're going to see that a lot of the expectations about who the Christ would be are not met. God comes and shatters expectations and acts in a different way than would have been expected. We saw last week that God broke kind of the silence uh, with sending Gabriel to come to Zechariah, who was a priest who was serving in the temple, to announce that John the Baptist was going to come and prepare the way for the Messiah. So if you're reading through this, you're saying, now the Messiah is going to come. And that's where we pick up with the announcement of the birth of Christ in Luke 1, verses 26 through 38. And that's on page uh, 855 and a little bit on 856. So I'd encourage you to turn there in your Bible and I'd really encourage you, I know we say this all the time, but keep your Bible open during the sermon. There's a lot of things that you'll miss if you can't kind of look around on this passage and see some of the things we're highlighting. So please keep this open, keep it on your lap, maybe show your kid, point stuff out. Um, but please keep your Bible open in front of you. I will not be offended if you're looking down at your Bible instead of looking up at me. That's where I want your eyes. So let's go to the word of the Lord. Again, Luke 1, 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? 
And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. The grass withers, Father, the flower fades, but your word will remain for eternity. Father, open our eyes by your spirit to understand the truth of your word. Help us see there the gospel. Comfort our hearts, draw us to Christ, and transform our lives. Father, we pray. Amen. So like I said, there were a lot of expectations about who the Messiah was going to be. And in the vein of expectations, I have a couple questions that I'm going to ask us. We're going to start with these questions, and we're going to also end with these questions. I'm going to come back around to them at the end. We're going to see maybe how we would answer them. So maybe that's a good hint for you if you like being able to predict when the end of the sermon is coming. When you hear these questions again, you know that the end is near. The uh, two questions, how do we expect God to work in the world, and who do we expect him to use? How do we expect God to work in the world, and who do we expect him to use? I don't know if you guys follow popular Christian culture and Christian news. Sometimes it wears me out. Uh, but every time there's a, a celebrity conversion, I'm not going to name names or anything, Every time there's a celebrity conversion, whether it's an athlete or a musician or some sort of celebrity, I think it reveals something about how many Christians in the United States think that God works in the world. We think that God's finally going to break through into our culture because a powerful person is confessing Christ. We think that maybe people are going to finally think that Christianity is cool and it's going to be accepted in our world because of this famous person. I have to admit that when I was in college, I, I remember thinking that if only Tom Brady would become a Christian, that there'd be this evangelistic breakthrough. Man, if only someone could reach that guy with the gospel, then we'd finally see God work in this world. But that reveals something about our expectations, doesn't it? Maybe we think that politicians or influential and powerful people were, are going to bring in God's work in the world. But I think our passage today reveals something different about how God works in the world. God doesn't work through fancy and shiny things. Often he works through the lowly things and the humble things. So that's going to be our big idea for this morning, if you like taking notes, is that we need to trust in a God who works powerfully through the lowly. We need to trust in a God who works powerfully through the lowly. And our first idea is we look right at the beginning of the text and verses 26 through 30, is that God works power three, powerfully through the lowly by choosing to favor a teenage girl. God works powerfully through the lowly by choosing to favor a teenage girl. I think when we approach this passage, uh, we might not always appreciate, like we should, the lowliness of Mary. Until we place this passage alongside the passage from last week. 
there's a lot of similarities between what we're reading in the birth announcement of Jesus and, and what we read last week in the birth announcement of John the Baptist. And I think that these parallels are, are obviously intentional. And these passages are obviously meant to be read together as one follows the other in the book of Luke. I think this is the one time in preaching that I really wish we had PowerPoint at Livingstone because I would love to take these two passages and put them up on a screen and highlight all of the parallels. But this is where I really want you to be able to look at your Bible. And the nice thing in the Pew Bible is these two passages are they're right next to each other on the same page. So I just want to highlight a couple of these and then we'll talk about the significance of all of these parallels. So look with me at this passage. I'm going to go back and forth from the left to the right. So first... An angel, and not just any angel, the same angel, Gabriel, comes to Zechariah and Mary. How does Zechariah and Mary respond? They respond by being troubled. The angel tells them both, do not be afraid. The angel tells Zechariah, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Guess what he says to Mary? He says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. The angel tells Zechariah, you shall call his name John. The angel tells Mary, you shall call his name Jesus. Both Zechariah and Mary are told that their son will be great, particularly using that language. They will be great. He will be great. And those are just the obvious parallels. Those are the ones where you look back and forth, and it's literally the same exact wording from one to the other. There's a lot of other parallels, some that we'll even look at, uh, that you don't see as quickly as you read through the text. But then there's a question, what's the purpose of these parallels? Why did Luke communicate to us with the intention of making these parallels so clear to us? And I think when we go to this passage, the parallels aren't so much meant to highlight the similarities as they're meant to highlight the differences. Because when you go through these passages, when so much is the same, The little differences are the things that jump off the page at you. Things like, you will call his name John, and you will call his name Jesus. It's that one word, the name of the child, that's supposed to jump off the page at us. So for this first point, I want us to look at the difference between Zechariah and Mary and let that highlight to us something that God is intending to communicate. So if you remember from last week, Zechariah was a priest, He was serving in the temple in Jerusalem, the center of religious worship for the Jews. Gabriel came to him while he was performing a really special function, a special ritual, something that would have been probably a a once-in-a-lifetime thing for him. So it's a special event already before the angel even comes to him. We're told that there are multitudes outside praying while Zechariah is inside performing the ritual and even when he comes out it's obvious to the multitudes that he has seen a vision so we go from the temple with the priest in jerusalem and this passage takes us to nazareth a small town in northern israel that's insignificant it takes us to a poor insignificant unmarried teenage girl and that's supposed to jump off the page to us And the question is, why would God choose this girl? I think we could try to speculate. We could try to think, well, maybe maybe Mary's like this particularly righteous girl. Maybe maybe Mary just has a really great prayer life. Maybe Mary has particularly strong faith, and that's what made God choose her. But I actually think we get the answer. The first thing that the angel says to her is, greetings, O favored one. 
And that's not favored, like there's something awesome about you that made me favor you. It's not like how I favor Culver's over Burger King because their burgers are superior. It's not that type of favored. It comes from the root word that forms the word grace when we translate into the New Testament from the Greek. You could actually translate this, greetings, O grace-bestowed one. The emphasis is on God giving grace. God being the one choosing her. And as, as we learned back in Ephesians 2 earlier this fall, grace is not dependent upon our qualities. Grace is dependent upon the God who chooses. The God who gives us his love and his kindness despite who we are. So if the question is, what's so great about Mary? I think that's the wrong question. It's about a God who chooses then we could ask, why does God choose even to give grace to this insignificant teenage girl? Why did he do that? What was in his plans and in his purpose? And I think when we look at this whole passage, that it's God showing us how he works powerfully through the lowly. When God chooses who he's going to use in his kingdom, it's not like us when we were young on the playground during recess picking people for our kickball team. It's not saying, I just want to find the best people. I want to find the most talented people and the most powerful people, and I want them on my side. God isn't just sitting in heaven waiting for some powerful people to join his team so he can finally do his work. God intentionally, over and over in scripture, chooses the lowly people, chooses the people who are not powerful to display his glory and his goodness. Listen to what Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 1. You don't have to flip there. It says this, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. What I think we need is a renewed view of our own insignificance. If we want to truly understand how God intends to use us for his kingdom and for his glory, we need to understand that even the things that we bring to God's kingdom, whether it's the ability to play piano or being really good with spreadsheets so you can do budgeting things, or being a friendly person who can greet people, or being good at hospitality, even the things that we are good at are gifts to us from God. We need to understand our own lowliness if we want to understand how God intends to use us for his kingdom and for his glory. Well, like I said, there's a a lot of parallels in this passage. But the biggest parallel isn't between Zechariah and Mary, this, this priest and this lowly girl. The biggest parallel isn't between the temple in Jerusalem and the little town of Nazareth. The biggest parallel and the biggest contrast is actually between the sons who are promised to these people. Between John the Baptist and who he is going to be and Jesus and who he is going to be. So that brings us to our second point. God works powerfully through the lowly by sending the promised king into humble circumstances. By sending the promised king into humble circumstances. So as we're reading this, and even the things that we've already talked about, it seems right away, and initially as you read through this passage, that it's a comparison of greater to lesser. That everything about the announcement to John, about John the Baptist's birth 
seems greater than the announcement about Jesus' birth. And that seems wrong to us, right? Why, why would God make the announcement in the temple for John the Baptist, but to this lowly girl for Jesus? And it seems that way until you hit the identity of the Son and the one that is promised. So look with me to, to verses 30 and 31. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Again, that's favor. It's the word for grace. Behold, you will receive in your, uh, conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So in both of these passages, as I mentioned earlier, the angel provides a name for the son. So I think those names are very significant. They're not random names. The name John means Yahweh is gracious. And this points to kind of two things. First, that God is gracious to Zechariah and Elizabeth in giving them a son in their old age by his grace and answering their prayers. But it also points us to God's graciousness in sending his prophet, sending the one who's going to prepare the way for the Lord, the one who's going to call people to repentance. That's God's goodness and his grace to the people. But Jesus' name, on the other hand, comes from the same root as, as the name Joshua. So Josh probably knows pretty well what it means. It means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. So this son isn't just a prophet. He's not just one who calls people to repentance. He is the Savior. He is the one who is to come. And we see, again, that these two sons fulfill prophecy. Where John the Baptist fulfilled prophecy, we saw in Malachi 3 and 4, is the one who's going to come and prepare the way. Jesus fulfills prophecy given to David about the king, the messianic king who is going to come, and he fulfills all these prophecies. I can't talk about all of them, so I'd encourage you this afternoon to go and flip open your Bible and, and read 2 Samuel 7 and, and this passage in Luke 1 alongside each other and see how Jesus is a fulfillment. But he comes and he's going to sit on David's throne for eternity. He's going to be called the son of God, that his kingdom will have no end. So clearly Jesus is presented here as the fulfillment of all of God's prophecies to David and to Israel about that king who is going to come. But even, even this isn't the greatest display of God's power through lowliness. It keeps getting greater and greater and greater as it goes through the passage. It takes us to the third point, that God works powerfully through the lowly by coming into our fallen world. Not just fulfilling his promises, but by coming himself into our world. This is in verses 34 and 35, if you're following along. And up, up until that point, I think that the reader could have assumed that Jesus would be great. He could have assumed that Jesus was going to be the king, that he might even be the greatest ruler that had ever lived, but they wouldn't have necessarily assumed that Jesus would be God himself. It says that he will be called the son of the most high, but even in the Old Testament, kings and rulers are sometimes called the sons of God. Even in the promise in 2 Samuel 7, it said that he will be called God's son. So they might have just taken that as a reference to him being a king. But as you get to the later part of this passage, it becomes really clear who this son is going to be. That it's going to be God himself come in the flesh to dwell with us. And Mary said to the angel, how, would this, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. I think we need to be clear that this passage uh, doesn't imply any sort of an inappropriate relationship between the Holy Spirit and Mary. It's talking about the miraculous nature of the conception of Jesus. 
And even more than that, it's teaching us something incredible about who the Son is. Earlier in the service, we confessed together our faith in the Apostles' Creed, which is this ancient creed that is meant to summarize the basics of what we believe. It teaches us what is, what's at the very heart of the gospel. And there's two lines in here that are emphasized about Jesus' conception and his birth. In the Apostles' Creed, it says that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Why are those two things so important? Why would people who are going to write a paragraph of the most essential things that you could possibly think about Christianity, the most essential pieces of the gospel, why would they include those two little facts? That he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. I think it's because they recognize that those two things are essential for the gospel. They're true because the Bible tells us so, both here in this passage and even in prophecies back in Isaiah about the one who's going to come and be born of a, a virgin. But they knew that if Christ was to be truly divine, if he was going to really be the Son of God, that he had to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. He wasn't conceived by natural methods. If he was just the son of Mary and Joseph, he would just be an ordinary guy. But he wasn't. He came as God. He came and dwelt among us. As you guys know, I like to say that if you change who Jesus is, you change what the gospel is. And the writers of the Apostles' Creed recognize that, particularly in their day as there was false teaching about who Jesus was. They recognized that his identity as man and as God was essential for the gospel. That if Christ was to die for human sin, he had to be human. But if he was going to live a perfect life, if he was going to die on our behalf, bear the weight of sin, and defeat death and resurrection, that he had to be God. As you go through this, there's even a stronger emphasis on the divinity of Jesus. There's this imagery of the, the Most High overshadowing Mary. And that points us back to Old Testament imagery in Exodus 40 of the glory of the Lord overshadowing the tabernacle, which is the place that God dwelt among his people. And the picture is of God's presence with his people. It's saying that God is going to come and he's going to dwell. His presence is going to be in the womb of Mary and she's going to be she's going to birth the son of God and God is going to be with us. He's going to come and he's going to be present present with us in this world. And this is the most shocking piece of this entire passage. We love stories of people who lower themselves. We love stories of famous athletes who start schools and celebrities who go overseas to third world countries and feed poor people. People famous people who work in homeless shelters. And there's this principle that I want us to see, that the higher the person is, the more famous and powerful and prestigious the person is, and the lower the people that they seem to help, that they're, the more impressive it is to us. The more glory is found in that. And I actually agree with that principle to, to some extent. But that we see that there's no condescension, there's no power displayed through lowliness that compares in any way with the incarnation, with God the king and ruler and maker of the universe, coming and becoming man and dwelling among us. And that should inspire worship in us. The great Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards talked about this in terms of diverse excellencies in Christ. That the glory of Christ is made more beautiful when you recognize his majesty and his holiness and set right alongside that his humility. 
John Piper talks about it as being like the light and dark in a painting that makes the contrast pop, that makes it beautiful. When you put the light alongside the dark, it makes it so much easier to see. It makes it so much more glorious, all of the different colors. And in Christ, we see majesty and we see condescension. And that should shock us. It should awe us. It should cause us to glorify God. It should cause us to glorify Christ and to worship him. And it should also inspire a lot of humility in us. Just think for a second. If Christ was willing to humble himself, the God of the universe humble himself, become man, to save sinners, why would we ever think that anything we're called to do to serve God or others is beneath us? That doesn't make any sense. I've heard it described as the greatest condescension you could have, ever have among humans is just one worm on top of a higher hill coming down and being with other worms. Our condescensions are not impressive. You can have the most famous person go to the lowliest of humanity and it's nothing like what Christ has done and yet we still often think that there are things that God might call us to do that are beneath us. We need, again, to have a view of our own significance. We need to have a view of Christ's humility and it needs to inform our humility as well, which takes us to the last point, that God works powerfully through, lo- through the lowly by calling submissive servants. God works powerfully through the lowly by calling submissive servants. So we started this passage by looking at Mary, and we're going to end by looking at Mary. I think uh, it's really important for us. I think sometimes as Protestants we can be afraid to talk about Mary too much, but she really is an example for us. If we're willing to talk about Abraham being an example for us, then the mother of our Lord should also be an example for us. Of course, it doesn't mean that we're worshiping her or praying to to her, but we should talk about her. We shouldn't be afraid to do that. So I want to look at Mary and the way that she responds to all this. Verse 34, we see that she's confused. Right? She's confused. I'm I'm a virgin. How am I going to have a child? So if anybody says that the New Testament doesn't teach a virgin birth, Mary would not have been confused if it wasn't obvious that it was a virgin birth. Luke believed in a virgin birth, and so it's been popular, just so you know, in the last hundred years for a lot of scholars to deny the virgin birth. Don't do it. Trust in Scripture, right? And the angel responds. He wants to reassure her. This is an impossible thing, right? That, that God is going to come and that a virgin is going to give birth, and he reassures her by, by telling her about the, the miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't, like, clarify everything. He doesn't tell us the intricacies of how this is all going to work. He just says that God's going to make this happen, and you can trust that. And then he gives her an example of Elizabeth, right? This old, barren woman. But God has given her a son. She's conceived. She's six months along. God has worked the impossible. It says nothing will be impossible with God, which we have to recognize is not just something to be stuck on a mug, that statement, nothing is impossible with God. It's not a motto for your sports team. It's not like this inspirational quote when you're, like working out at the Y, nothing's impossible with God. Nothing, nothing's impossible with God. It's, it's not that our will is not impossible because God can make what we want to happen happen. It's that what God intends to happen, God's purposes won't fail because he's strong. So the emphasis is on God's will. So I just want to make sure that we use that phrase correctly. So tangent over. Um, I want us to notice here how Mary responds, though. The Holy Spirit, and then uh, the, the angel has reassured her about the Holy, with the Holy Spirit, and Uh, with this news about Elizabeth. But she responds, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. These are incredible words of faith. 
It wouldn't have been easy. It's not easy today to be a single mom. It wouldn't have, she wasn't necessarily a single mom, but it wouldn't have been easy 2,000 years ago in Israel to give birth and be pregnant before you're married. God wasn't calling her to do some comfortable thing. She responds, I'm your servant. And I think we have a lot to learn here. It's not that I'm telling you, like, dare to be a Mary. Like, I'm not saying just be like Mary. Mary accomplished something, but God accomplished something through Mary. That's a one-time deal. None of us are going to, like, birth Christ into the world around us. But we can learn from her faith. We can learn that in whatever capacity God calls us to serve in his kingdom, we know that God is able to bring his purposes to pass despite our weakness and despite the circumstances and how they look to us. Some of us and some of you might be called to go overseas and be missionaries. Most or all of us are probably going to be called to proclaim an unpopular message in our world. Some, if not most of us, are going to be called to suffer for the Lord's sake. Some of us may be called to die. But whatever God's call, our cry must be, I am your servant. Let it be done to me according to your word. Well, at the same time, trusting in the sovereignty and omnipotence of our God. I read this summer in a book that we should long to be the leader who changes a generation. But I, I think we should ask a different question. I think we should ask, will you be a lowly servant? Will you trust a powerful God and submit yourself to his will? Will you glorify God even in the ordinary, even if you never gain power and even if you never gain prestige? Will you trust in our God who works powerfully through the lowly? So I want us to consider, again, the two questions I asked at the beginning. How do you expect God to work in the world? And who do you expect him to use? If we place our confidence in athletes and musicians, in politics, in our fancy programs and methods, I wonder if we've actually considered deeply enough the gospel that we're trying to proclaim. Christian hope isn't just a grab for power and influence. The Christian gospel is a paradoxical gospel. It's a gospel of power through lowliness. It's a gospel of a king who is made low. Our gospel is the gospel of God become man, of a savior who suffers, a gospel of foolish wisdom, and a gospel of power displayed through weakness. May we understand our gospel. May we understand what God has done for us in Christ, in Christ condescending, becoming man for our sake, dwelling among us, living for us, dying for us, rising for us. And may we respond with faith. May we respond with worship. And may we be servants who submit ourselves to a God who works powerfully through the lowly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this paradoxical gospel. The gospel of salvation through suffering. Thank you for the work of Christ that you sent your son into the world to save lowly sinners like us, but thank you also that you call us to do your work in the world, to be your ambassadors. And I pray that we would view our work not as the work of powerful people, but as the work of lowly people that are used by a powerful God. Work in us and work in this church. May it be done to, to us according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.